Right, tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored with me, Jeremy Kyle. Strikes, strife and sewage. Now an NHS crisis looms. Britain does feel broken. We'll debate how to fix it. A royal air farce as the RAF sidelines white men. Why are our armed forces fighting culture wars? And 25 years on, yet another Diana documentary investigates her tragic death. The question, is it time to let the people's princess rest in peace? There's so many coincidences, so many odd things that just don't add up. 85% of the ordinary people of this country believe Diana was murdered with my son. Good evening, my friends, and a big, big welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. I am still Jeremy Kyle. So today we discover train drivers, teachers, nurses, dock workers, postal workers, and now, would you believe it, criminal barristers, striking, apparently, as the new working in Blighted Blighty, as a wearied nation asks, if the British government can't be bothered to work, why should we? Apparently, by the way, even the scriptwriters have walked out here. It says, insert next line and add simple joke. No. At least we do know our striking workers aren't lazing at the beach, because today, apparently, 22 shorelines are now closed because of raw sewage as water companies take gross incontinence. Sorry, I meant incompetence all too literally. It was a joke. Uh, the government has denied this is simply the latest attempt to deter migrants crossing the channel, although, frankly, it might be more effective. Now, if you are brave enough to take a dip in the dung... Do you get that? There's absolutely no guarantee that anybody will be able to nurse you through the stomach aches because NHS bosses say our hospitals are now facing a massive crisis too. The government's planning a campaign saying, don't go to A&E. If only they'd taken their own advice. Apparently, GPs in England could even be asked to prescribe discounts on heating bills this winter, which is all well and good, but you'd have to wait until next summer for an appointment. And as if that wasn't enough, draw breath. Today, economists warn that the UK inflation rate could actually hit 19% in January. I had a joke about inflation, but I'm not going to do it. Because, yes, between the strikes and the sewage, the soaring inflation and the wage stagnation, the lack of energy and the lack of government, it really does, my friends, feel like broken Britain is happening. So we're asking tonight, who is going to fix it? Now, joining me now is Dr Emika Okoroka and uh, Naomi Isit, whose son, 18-year-old Jamie, tragically died after an ambulance took over 17 minutes to arrive. Dr Amika, um, to start with, thank you for joining us. Um, Cheers. So many people talk about the NHS and mm -hmm. they say it's a money pit, money gets thrown in, it, it's there for us but it's not there. Why is it so overwhelmed and how bad is it, truthfully? Honestly, I think it's mainly multifactorial. There's so many things going on with the NHS that a lot of people don't realise. I think... You get like these, you know, sensationalist type titles of people waiting 17 hours to see like a, a doctor and whatnot. But fact. there's a lot of context you need to take into it. So I think the NHS is obviously working at its limit and it has been for a, a number of years. I think it's kind of bubbling to the brim now where we're seeing it manifest and patients are coming forward and these stories are getting more and more frequent. And that's why everyone's wondering what's going on in the NHS. Obviously, as a frontline worker, I'm seeing a lot of the backlog coming in from COVID. Obviously, COVID was a big thing that hit the NHS. We tried to adapt as well as we could. But you need to know a lot of the elective stuff that we would have done during COVID that we had to push back for the emergency stuff, a lot of that stuff is being seen kind of now. And it's all coming to like 
a brim. I get that, and I also get, and I want to say right here and now, nurses, doctors, and everybody that works in hospitals do an amazing job, and we as a nation expect them to be there, the health mm. service. But I will take you up on one point. There was an appalling picture in the mirror the other week of the gentleman in Cornwall who waited 17 hours for an ambulance. They, his family put a tarpauling over him. They couldn't move him from outside. Now, if you said to that family, with the greatest of respect, look, mm. this is sensationalised headlines, it's not. He waited 17 hours. We're not criticising the people who are suffering. What we're saying is, this is not working. The NHS... Front of the mail today, we've got a breakthrough for cancer. Further down, you can't get through on 111. You can't get an ambulance. You can't get to see a GP. You would understand the people of Great Britain yeah. are not criticising you and your profession, but no, they're saying... What the hell's going on? And I understand because everyone expects the NHS to be, you know, available at the point of care, which we are, and everyone expects a perfect health system. Mm. In the event, in, you know, actuality, it can't be. Your colleagues are leaving in droves. Exactly. So, one, you have the issue where you have the workforce. So, for myself, as a local doctor, I try and fill in all the spots where there aren't doctors there, especially some of the spots where last-minute dropouts and things of that nature. And it's difficult because a lot of the time I'm working... Half the time, we don't even have the capacity of staff that we should have. What would a doctor on the front line say is needed to combat the problem? Is it government? Is it money? Is it reorganisation? Because that big, that big argument for years is it, it's, honestly, it has billions thrown in it. Why is it not more effective without criticising you guys? Honestly, it's just not as efficient as we want it to be. It's multifactorial, so it's basically a combination of all of it. I think money obviously would help in so many situations, so social services and trying to get people out of hospital as in inter-social services, to clear up beds so we can admit people and ambulances wouldn't have to wait in A&E about three hours just to try and get a patient in the well, door. I'll tell you a story. on the roads picking people up. A, a lot of people saying about ambulances, and, I, and I'll, I'll give you a, a story very briefly to show years and years ago about with the ambulance service. And the most shocking story was this woman, it was in Birmingham, she got heavily drunk at a Christmas party. They had mm -hmm. to send an ambulance to her, right? She, she basically threw up in the back of the ambulance. Mm -hmm. They took her to hospital. Legally, she had to stay for eight hours. She abused the staff. They took 45 minutes to clean that ambulance out before they could get out on the road, mm -hmm. right? I'd fine her. I'd charge her whatever it costs to get that ambulance out. Are people going to A&E for the wrong reasons? Is that making it difficult? Are they calling ambulances for the wrong reasons? Because a lot of people will say the genuine people are missing out. That's what I want to know, really. The thing is, you don't want to get into that like area of dissuading people to actually call ambulances no. and call 111 and come in when they need to because we want people to be seen if they need to be seen and we'd always stick with we'd rather be safe than sorry i don't want anyone sitting there with a with a with a heart attack or a silent myocardial infarction saying oh it might just be indigestion i don't want to bother the nhs because that's not what we're asking but we are asking people to you know be sensible in situations where they think they can actually avoid putting themselves in risky situations where they wouldn't have to see doctors. Because and let's be honest, 111 needs upgrading, doesn't it? Because I'm utterly convinced, and if people don't like this, sorry, uh, that it's a great, great concept, but it's now manned by people who are in a call centre who are just reading a tick list, because I have a, an absolute story of my own about my son, and the person said, is he breathing? Of course he's breathing, he's crying his eyes out in front of me. I just... I just it's difficult. Do me a favour, and, and I yeah. really appreciate it. Let's, let's cross to Cornwall. Naomi Isset is a mother um, whose son tragically died of a heart attack after an ambulance delay of more than 17 minutes. Naomi, thank you so much indeed uh, for joining me. Um, explain your story. No problem. Um, well, Jamie was just turned 18 when he actually... It wasn't a heart attack. He actually suffered a cardiac arrest um, during the night of New Year's Eve. He was at a friend's house watching fireworks, no warning at all, and he 
sat down on the ground, said he felt funny, and they realised he wasn't breathing and had no pulse. Um, his friend called an ambulance, called 999, um, and they waited. And I've heard the audio, and they were screaming on the phone, where's the ambulance? Why is it taking so long? The police turned up with no defibrillator. He was screaming, where's the ambulance? Why is it taking so long? Um, the ambulance crew that turned up were amazing. The casualty doctors were amazing. The nurses were amazing. Intensive care nurses were amazing. But the ambulance just did not reach him in time. And we lost Jamie on the 5th of January due to oxygen starvation to his brain caused um, by his cardiac arrest. Naomi, first up, our condolences from everybody here. Um, two questions for you. And, and again, to the medical profession, and I so respect what you just said, because they are doing their absolute best. If the ambulance had arrived faster, do you believe that, that, that your son would still be alive today? Yes. If, if the ambulance had have arrived in the target time set out by the ambulance service themselves of seven and a half minutes, Jamie would have had a 56% more chance of survival. Even at 10 minutes, he still had a chance of survival. At 17 and a half minutes, that poor ambulance crew on the way to our boy knew they weren't going to save his life. They knew it was too late. Who do you blame for this? I think it's very easy to, to look at the medical profession, look at the government. Is it a combination of everything? Because to me, the reason we wanted to speak to you and, and the doctor this morning, it, it, this evening, is, is actually Britain does seem broken. We don't seem to be able to get an ambulance. We don't seem to be able to see a GP. And stories like yours really resonate. What, who do you blame? Well, this is the problem. The blame seems to be moved from one person to the next. You know, we were told by the ambulances that they can't offload patients. There was 32 ambulances in the area where Jamie collapsed on New Year's Eve. 17 of them were queuing outside A&E departments. The A&E departments say they can't get people onto wards. The wards say they can't get people out into social care. So the blame just moves around. But somebody has to sit up and take notice. He was an 18-year-old boy and he needed help and he waited and waited until no help was, was ever going to be enough. And, I, I, you know, we keep going back to, is it money? Do we need more ambulance crews? Do we need more doctors and nurses? But I think it's across the board that, the, you know, we, we've never blamed an ambulance crew. We've never blamed a doctor or a nurse, and we never would. They, all of the people that treated Jamie were the most amazing angels to us, but they just couldn't reach him in time. And, you know, we feel just as sorry for them as we do for ourselves as a family because they can't do any more than they're doing, but somebody's got to step in. Money has to be put into our NHS to make these services more available. And emergency healthcare in our town of Rugby, that ambulance had to travel 15 miles to reach our boy. That's how long he waited. Why are there not ambulances nearby? Why are there not more healthcare provisions nearby to help him when he needed them? Naomi, thank you for just a sec. I'd like to bring in Ed Burkett, who's the head of energy at the Onward Think Tank, for a reason. I mean, we're talking to a mecca there. We're talking about to a person who lost a son. And the, and the situation is that it's going to get worse as the winter goes on. And you were telling my researchers, you think there's a 50-50% chance there could be blackouts this winter. What will that mean for the NHS? What will that mean for broken Britain, Ed? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There are going to be serious challenges with our energy supply this winter. I think the scenario where we have large-scale blackouts across the whole of UK is extremely unlikely. Um, but there is a chance, a reasonable chance, maybe it's 50-50, that some customers somewhere at some point this winter will be disconnected because the continent of Europe as a whole 
just does not have enough gas and therefore does not have enough electricity uh, in certain scenarios this winter. And that's a problem across the whole of Europe. So it's not just broken Britain, as per your show tonight. This really is a, a continent-wide problem. The TUC believes nationalising the energy companies would work. What's your view on that, Ed, quickly? I think the question is, what problem are you trying to solve? The energy suppliers, which is what they're talking about nationalising, are not making big profits. So you wouldn't exactly make any money that you could use to discount people's bills by nationalising energy suppliers. The profits are all with the energy producers, uh, and that's why the government's put in place a windfall tax. Absolutely. Mecca, um, pretty dire right now. You heard Naomi's yeah. story. You were shaking your heads. It's going to get worse, isn't it? More people are going to be turning to the NHS if they can't heat their homes, they can't see a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, this crisis is going to get worse, isn't it? It is. Um, my condolences to Naomi, obviously, and her family. And it's really unfortunate what happened to her son. And as an emergency doctor, we know that what we call cerebral hypoxia, not getting enough oxygen to the brain and downtime when you've had a cardiac arrest, seconds matter, not even just minutes. And obviously the seconds are what make the difference. And that's why we need these ambulances available on the roads in rural areas, in urban areas, everywhere. Is it, is it briefly, I haven't got much time, is it money? Is it reorganisation? What is it? How can, what's the final line to the people watching this tonight? How can we I ensure that we can get ill people to hospital? It's all of it. I think money, obviously, first of all, but then you have to ask, where's this money going and what is it actually doing? Yeah. There's no point pumping money into the NHS and saying, you're giving the NHS this money billion, but people still can't get ambulances. Yeah. People still can't get social care because then you haven't really defeated the aim. You haven't really actually reached... I'll tell you something, I've done this a while and you're the most honest GP and doctor I've ever had. Thank you very much indeed. Ed Burkett as well from Onward and also Naomi, that tragic story. Our condolences to you and your family. Right, next on Uncensored, a British supermarket chain faces criticism, not my friends for charging eight quid for a tin of beans, but for selling non-vegan fruit. Heaven forbid. Uh, we're going to discuss that and dive into all of today's, today's debates. We're going to bring Jess's journos forward because I cannot wait for this next talk TV legend Mike Graham and former London Mayor Ken Livingston live in the studio. We're coming back in three. Welcome back, my friends. Now another week, another horrific story of knife crime in the UK. Boxing hero Tyson Fury's cousin Rico Burton was stabbed to death in Manchester over the weekend at the young age of 31. The heavyweight champion is now calling for tougher sentences for knife offenders. And I'm delighted <coughs> to tell you we're joining us live tomorrow night to discuss that story. And, but sadly, that story is an increasingly common one as violent crime and knife attacks rise across the United Kingdom. More crime is being committed. Fewer crimes are being investigated. It's just another boulder on the mountain of emergencies facing Britain's next prime minister. It's also the first issue I'm going to tackle with tonight's panel. I'm delighted to welcome Talk TV legend Mike Graham. This should be real fun. And former mayor of London, uh, Ken Livingstone. Gentlemen, welcome. You, you're in a bad mood because you've been waiting an hour and a half, Ken. Is that <laughs> yes, right? it was very long. Get a grip, man. Let's start on a serious note with knife crime. Uh, you say, Ken, when I was London mayor, I wanted to lock up any young person who had a knife. I'm mm. going to throw this out there. I do not understand why we do not have stronger deterrence. I would genuinely, hand on heart, if I found a youth with a knife twice, I would put him in prison for five years. It worked for mm. acid attacks. Why are we not stronger? Well, I think the, the part of the problem is, I mean, if you look back, we had quite a lot of knife crime. It was getting worse. And it's mainly young men carrying a knife and very often killing the woman that they're actually living with. And it's got worse. And I think the simple fact is that I grew up in a world where there's virtually knife crime was a quarter of what it is today. But we were part of community groups. We had friends. Now there's an awful lot 
of young men are lonely, not involved with others. They get angry. Well, they, they, they gravitate Communities towards... want matters. But, but absolutely, but they gravitate towards gangs, don't they, Mike? This is yeah. a national problem. Are we strong enough? No, we're not strong enough. And part of the problem that we have now mm. is very much connected to the drugs business. We've mm. got now massive drugs gangs yeah. in this country. If you're growing up on a housing estate in Tottenham, you know, you're not going to care that uh, the guy next to you is working hard and he's looking after his family. What you are going to want uh, is a very nice BMW that you can buy as soon as you sign up mm. to work with the drug gangs. And you stab people as a matter of course because that's what they do. Yeah. And that's the problem. If they solve the drug problem, mm. you solve the knife problem. The hot it, potato is stop and search, right? Somebody said to well, me, it's wrong and it's, it can be seen as racist. And what, mm. But they got 5,000 weapons off the streets of London I know, that's what year. I know. Look, When I became the mayor in 2000, we only had 25,000 police. I got it up to 35, but the important thing, I brought back street patrols, and that really had an impact. Crime went down 25%. If you have a copper coming round the corner every few minutes, you're not going to get involved in the sort of crime that so many kids do. And a big part of this is about drugs. And I, you know, I, I was born in 94. I grew up in that postal world where, I mean, the only drugs were cigarettes, you know. Literally, now, the drug trade has become global. And it's appalling. We need to crack down on it a lot more. So stop and search, and also, Ken makes a point, more police on the streets, more because police, police the street. are now social workers and mental health workers well, are actually committing... Well, they're typically doing the Macarena, aren't they? They're all doing dancing away. Going, Have you oh, seen that video police? online? Well, this is brilliant. Four policemen doing that's... the Macarena and having oh, a party. Yes, I saw that. But, it's yeah. no, but that's the point. That doesn't mm. resonate with people. Let's move on to a subject that mm. I'm sure I can't wait to ask. Boris Johnson. Got to feel sorry for him, Ken. Booted out by his own party. Three years, got Brexit done. Watch his face. Got Brexit done, made the big decisions, rolled out the vaccine. Come on. I think the Tory party I... and MPs are already regretting getting rid of him, no. man. I mean, they, they look at Boris and they think, he's good at winning elections. He beat me easily. I mean, he beat Jeremy Corbyn easily. Well, that wasn't and That difficult. was the main reason they wanted him. The thing is, most Tory MPs realised he was pretty disastrous as Prime Minister. He doesn't do the job. If I look back... The eight years he was Mayor of London, he only initiated one project. 76% of Tory members still want Boris Johnson, That's absolutely rubbish, by the way, Ken, because what he also instituted, much to my chagrin, actually, was the Boris bike. You know, we've now got thousands and thousands of bikes on the street because of Boris Johnson. No, no, I I started that project... When he defeated me, he then called them Boris Bikes. Well, well, they, well, they were called Boris Bikes. You would say that, but, I mean, your, your own party kicked you out, you know, and you're saying that he's not good for the Tory party. I mean, you t- last time I saw you, you were talking about joining the Greens, for heaven's sake. <clears throat> yeah, but they didn't kick me out before I lost to Boris. I mean... No, they kicked you out for different reasons. They kicked me out after the allegations I was anti-Semitic. Well, you are, aren't you? No. I mean, literally, the first woman I asked to marry me was Jewish. Right, OK. Did you mention Hitler to her? Because you normally mention Hitler. I mean, Hitler's the greatest evil in human history. Yes. He killed six million Jews. Mm. My generation grew up recognising that crime as appalling. But, no, I've had 40 years of life... I've not just been accused of being anti-Semitic, I've accused of being corrupt, alcoholic, violent, tax-dodging... Homosexual back in the days when that was the end of, that, <laughs> the end of your career. You know? Serious question. Uh, one of the things that I want to know about is we, we part Boris and we part the fact that, uh, you know, that the, the, the Tory MPs might be considering they got it wrong. What about the alternative? What do you make of Keir Starmer? Is he, is he, is he prime ministerial? Oh, God, he is. Keir Starmer will be our best prime minister since Clemmer Attlee. So better than of... Jeremy Corbyn would have been. Absolutely. Made. Then why did Keir you back Starmer... Jeremy Corbyn? Oh, of course, the alternative was worse. But, I mean, the thing about Keir Starmer is he only came into Parliament seven years ago. Before that, his career was prosecuting rapists and murderers. 
He's someone that does things and gets them right. He's not very exciting. He though, didn't is prosecute he? any of the grooming gangs, though, did he? He didn't prosecute those rapists, and he didn't prosecute an awful lot of people that he should have prosecuted. He Jimmy pros- Savile, for example, he didn't do anything about. And he can't say that he was a great DPP, but then actually go, oh, yeah, well, that wasn't my fault. No, so I, I wasn't in charge of that. I think he's been absolutely brilliant all his life. He came into politics to do things, not to be a celebrity. So what's like he famous Boris. for exactly? What's he done exactly? Because he can't even land a glove on Boris Johnson, one of the prime ministers who was probably. At, the, at his lowest ebb, and he couldn't win a point against him in Parliament questions. Well, hang on. He's massively ahead of Boris Johnson in That's the opinion. He should be out, he We're should on be the Ken. point of a, a general election victory. Should he yeah. not be out of sight, though, Ken, with respect, just briefly? Um, no. You would think with all those own goals of Johnson and what's happened, I would have thought that the Labour Party would be as far ahead as Blair would have been. Do you genuinely believe that he'll be Labour's the next Prime Minister? well ahead in the polls. If there's an election... Every time I speak, Labour will win. Every time I speak to people like Keir Starmer and I speak to the front bench, they say the following: "We we are coming from our worst position ever because of Jeremy Corbyn, and Mm. if we even ended on equal terms, that would be a result." You supported Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I mean, Jeremy, thing. I mean, I'd known Jeremy for fifty years. He was really great friend, and that's why I supported him. But I do have to say, he wasn't any good at the job. He's a really nice guy. When my wife met him. We were having a dinner together. He said, the nicest man I've ever met in my life. But he was no good at running the machine. It's a very interesting comment. Um, Tesco vegan fruit. I don't even understand what this story is about. What, what, you know this. Yes, it's something, to do with, uh, it's something to do with wax, right? Apparently, you know when you put wax onto certain kinds of fruit and vegetables to make them look nice and shiny? Do you do that? Well, they do it in the shops, right? Because they don't want you to buy a lemon that looks manky. They want you to have a nice lemon that looks all shiny. And when they put some of this wax on, it turns out that it's made from the husks of insects or something. And apparently vegans... Can't touch it. Are you a vegan, Ken? Oh, well, I, I gave up red meat about 12 years. I gave up red meat, salt, sugar, butter, fat. Now, my heart profile is equivalent to someone 14 years younger. How old so are I, you? I'm 77. You look good for 77. So, are you, you're not vegan, right? Do, do you, are you keen on vegans? What do you make? No, I, Mike hasn't got any I time st- for that. I still enjoy calamari. <laughs> so, you, so you clearly, you still eat living things. What about the newts? How are the newts doing? Have you still got? Well, I don't eat my newts. They're in the pond. Are they still my, in the pond? Did you get that? My newts. I oh, thought it was quite funny. Yeah. Uh, right, listen, this is also one of my favourite stories of the day. Uh, it is a bit tongue-in-cheek. Conservative condoms, apparently. Do you, what, do you, what do we know about this? Well, they probably leak a lot, like the government, I well, presume, it, do they? <laughs> Wow. Um, apparently there are... I haven't got any information. Where's Macabre with the names of all the men? Because apparently there's lots of different information about condoms. Complete silence in my ear. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing going on. What, what it is is that they've apparently come into conferences and we all yeah. know what... Uh, you know what, Labour Party mm. conference and Conservative conferences, they're all at it, basically. I mean, forget about the policies. <laughs> they stay up all night, all night parties. People wake up in the mm. morning, the walk of shame... Oh, there we are. ...right in the seafront. Uh, there you are. There you St- go. Sure and stable, I think that says. Strong and stable. Have we got yeah. any others? The most honourable member we've got. Yes. That's quite funny. Do uh, you have to have voted to leave or remain? Does it matter? <laughs> What's the story? Can, what, what do you think of conservative condoms, Ken? I think every conservative should be forced always to wear a condom so they don't produce any more bloody conservatives. <laughs> uh, well, there is yeah. one that says Labour isn't working, but this yeah. this condom will. Do you think? Do you Why think not? there's a market there? I just grew up in that postal world where we're all told you've got to wear a condom or you'll get some terrible disease. Which is I fair mean, and that, when AIDS came along. I mean, broadly, the, the surge in sales of condoms then. Because, I mean, your life was at risk. Yeah. Overall, guys, um, we've had a bit of fun. We've also had the serious side to this. Um, just for 30 seconds, when you look at broken Britain today, when you look at a person waiting 17 hours for an ambulance, when you know that you oh. can't get a GP's appointment, you can't see a dentist, 
forget Boris bashing. Where do we go from here, Ken? Because it does seem that we're in dire straits. We are, I have never seen my country in such a mess that we're in now. And that means you've got to improve public spending, get more people better educated, make sure we get more investment, creating good new jobs. Our level of investment is pathetic compared to what you've got in Europe and much of the rest of the world. Mike, I disagree with Ken. I lived in the 70s as well, and it was a hell of a lot worse in the 70s when Labour were in power, and you had Leicester Square running them up with rats. There was You couldn't bury your own dead. You know, everybody was on strike. Right now, all we've mm. got is a bunch of Marxists pretending they want more money uh, when they're all paid 50 grand a year. It's not a crisis. They're not we just need... Yes, they are. £43,000 is the average salary of those people striking in Felixstowe, right? They work for Unite, they push boxes mm. around, they're very well paid. Mm. People like nurses should be better paid. That's Completely what I agree. Do you think... I agree you, about nurses needing better what do you, paid. Ken, what do you make of Labour MPs on picket lines, briefly? The, the Labour Party based on trade unionism. Absolutely union. right. I mean, but Starmer I, said you can't be in government if you can't I know, and I disagree line. with him about that. I think Labour MPs... I grew up in a Labour Party where Labour MPs were on picket lines through all the strikes of the time. And, you know, I, mean, I went looking for a picket line to join when this started, but there weren't any in my area. There you go. Uh, listen, gentlemen, what can I say? You might be polar opposites. I've loved it. Ken Livingstone, thank you very much. Steve Mike Graham as thank well. You. And coming next on Uncensored, the RAF tonight criticised for sidelining white men. We'll discuss that next with a former RAF sergeant. That's coming after the break. We're coming back. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.
Thank you very much, and dear friends, welcome back. Do not forget, tomorrow night, Tyson Fury on that sad news that his cousin uh, stabbed and died over the weekend, talking knife crime tomorrow, exclusive uh, to this programme. We'll let you know more about that. But next, the Royal Air Force is in the firing line for its politics again tonight. First, its head of recruitment quit after refusing to follow orders to sideline white men. Now it's been accused of artificially inflating its diversity stats, you try saying that, to hit government targets on female and ethnic minority recruits. So the question is, does positive discrimination have any role to play in modernising British defence, or should we, in fact, stick to fighting? Because that's the whole point. I'm joined now in the studio by Dr Afsal Ashraf. He was a senior officer in the UK Armed Forces and actually, interestingly, was head of training management at the Royal Air Force and also, uh, down the line, former SAS Sergeant Chris Ryan. Uh, welcome to you both. Um, Dr Afsal, I'll start with you. Yours is an incredible story because... You started by saying that you were discriminated against and then went really the whole circle. Tell us, tell us your view on this. Well, I haven't uh, talked about being discriminated against. I came here to talk about the issue um, that's in the news. That's what I was asked to do. Um, but when I was asked, yes, I was discriminated against. I have documentary evidence. But that's not something that bothers me. Um, I had a fantastic career in the Air Force. It was just awesome. And that's why I didn't take the matter further. The point here is the issue has been around for over a quarter of a century. 25 years ago, I was invited to help with recruitment of ethnic minorities. Um, I didn't take the job up. They're still struggling with a recruitment of ethnic minorities simply because uh, there is no way of retaining and developing the people we actually do recruit. A huge amount of money, a huge amount of resources, some very good people have been recruited to help recruit and improve recruitment. And what we're seeing here is a desperate attempt to meet figures rather than look at the strategy, look at the policy, look at what the causes are, and we've got 25 years of data plus. So, so for me, teach me uh, something here, because, you see, you've got the RAF, one of our uh, most important facets, and they want to increase all, all, all races, all creeds, all colours in. But what you're saying is, is that it's actually gone too far. Whilst you understand the need for that, you talked about that, and I completely agree with that, it's now at the point that we seem, unless I'm missing the point, to be discriminating. I don't even want to say about colour, right? To me, it's... Are we missing out on the very best people for the job and this blind sort of desire to let's get, you know, ten people here, ten people there? What about the best people? So well, that's I what I worry about. I, th I think that the best people are recruited. The selection processes ensure that. The big problem here is that this whole issue is being politicised simply because people are desperate to meet their own targets. And the problem is that to, in order to meet those targets, you need to make the career attractive to the people, you're, the group uh, that you're, 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 you're uh, trying to attract. Before I bring Chris Ryan in, is there discrimination now against there, white men? There is. And if, there will, if, if the story is true... Then there is. Do you think the story is true? I don't know. I mean, the contradictory story. There's one aspect of the story saying that that is what's happened, and the, the RAF seems to be denying that that is what happened. The point is that if it happens, or even if it's perceived to happen, not only is it illegal, 
it is very dangerous. And, and in all of this, security. there's sort of national security to consider. Yep. Let's go to Chris Ryan, former SAS uh, sergeant uh, live in Plymouth. Chris, welcome uh, to Piers Morgan Uncensored without him. Um, Chris, what do you make of this? Are we getting to a point where, in our quest to tick every single box in the United Kingdom, we're missing out on the best people and putting our, well, our national security at risk, fella? Good evening, Jeremy. Um, yes, you are. But first of all, I'd like to say the uh, group captain who resigned should be applauded for her courage and doing the right thing. Now, going back to recruitment, you cannot force people to join our armed forces. It's down to, you know, the, the individual who has a desire to join that unit and if you're just picking people up off the street because they fit a certain demographic, you are not going to get the best people for the job. Interestingly, James Heapy, good friend of mine, the Armed Forces Minister today, reiterated that the government has asked for this improvement in diversity. To you both, though, firstly, Afsal, how do you, how do you achieve diversity if you're favouring candidates over ability? How does that work? Well... You, it won't work if that's what you're doing. Do you think I, that's happening? Though? No, I'm not sure that that's what's happening. You see, when I was asked to join, the primary driver wasn't a diversity driver. It was actually the fact that the Air Force was struggling to recruit, as indeed the other forces were, but the Air Force was particularly struggling to recruit people in the technology field where they felt by opening up uh, to an untapped area of talent, uh, they could increase the talent that they needed. So the problem isn't diversity for diversity's sake. Um, it is because there is a need to um, make get the talent, the best talent, from all aspects of British society. I, I get that. And if I can bring Chris back in, of course, we want the best talent from every part of the United Kingdom, as, 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 as Dr Afsal says. But to me, unless I'm missing the point, unless this report doesn't seem to be true, but there seems to be more coming out the whole time... We are now missing out on some of the best talent in our quest to tick boxes. And you, you say about the group captain, there is a frustration. H how do you see it? Do you, do, you, do you think I'm speaking truthfully there or do you think that, that this is being built up? Do you think it really is an issue? Well, Jeremy, you've got to remember, we've, the, our armed forces were embedded in, in two campaigns for over 20 years. This, you know, this career path may not be, you know, what a young man or woman wants to do now. Now, the regiment has always suffered, or the SAS has always suffered for low numbers, and they've always been undermanned. And this whole thing is you can't force anybody onto selection. You know, you've got to, first of all, make the package attractive. You know, these, these young men and women aren't paid very well, and they're expected, you know, to put their lives on the line. Um, from that side, it, it comes back down to you cannot force people into our armed services. Now, I served alongside a number of guys of colour, and I'm telling you now, they would be affronted if they thought they were given something and they didn't deserve it or they didn't work for it or they weren't capable of that position they held. Absolutely. Now, once you start doing this with the figures, it is absolutely wrong and it just does not work. What the government should do is make the package more attractive to bring young men and women into, this, into, this, into our military. 
Um, based on what you've heard, uh, Afsar, and I completely uh, get what you're saying, you know, one doesn't know whether this is genuine or not. We live in a world where it seems to be about diversity targets, but on the ground. Um, yours is a very interesting story. We started by saying that you suffered discrimination, you were honest about that, and yet you got your head down, you carried on, and you said, I, I had the most awesome 25 years. When you look at the military today, would you join again? I would. But I want to come back to what Chris has said. I think he's made some very good points. One is, if the story is true, uh, this group captain deserves a great deal of praise because no matter what the issue is, people should stand up for what they believe is right. Absolutely. And I think this is something that uh, she deserves a, a great deal of applause for. The other thing that Chris has said, which really deserves to be taken on board, and that is that any person, uh, colour or whatever, um, uh, deserves to know that they've achieved it on marriage. And elite organisations, whether they're the Royal Air Force or the SAS, it is difficult to get in. It is extremely tough to get in. I can, if, this, if I tell the stories of the people that didn't make it with me, um, you know, through uh, bone fractures, through epilepsy, stress-related epilepsy, so many people didn't make it, and I did. And I wouldn't want to be a token. And in those days, of course, there was none of that tokenism. There was none of this diversity issue. So do you think that, very quickly, both of you, final question, do you think... <clears throat> Diversity is important, absolutely. Do you think the drive for it has been done in the wrong way? You both talk about how people of colour, absolutely, who have served and, and quite rightly would feel affronted, and I completely understand that. But do you think there is any part of, in this quest for diversity, that they've taken the wrong path and we are missing out on people? They yes or no? Have, they have taken the wrong path in that they're looking at um, discrimination and recruitment at the front end. It doesn't really exist. 99% of people in the armed forces are not um, prejudiced. It does exist at the very senior level because you get a, a pinnacle there where there is it's high competition. I didn't experience any uh, prejudice for the largest part of my career. I noticed it when I looked at my files and stuff and my performance at the top end. And that is where it gets difficult. If we had... Uh, like we have politicians, members of the House of Lords, uh, leaders in business and elsewhere, uh, of colour or females uh, in the armed forces, then we wouldn't have a problem. And 25 years ago, we could have grown a lot of talent. I'm not talking about myself, but there were several, only a very small number of officers of colour who were extremely talented. Why didn't they make it? Um, why didn't we have air marshals? Uh, of females and yep. of colour. That's the question. If they address that question, you will solve the recruitment question. Astor, thank you very much. Your final word from you, Chris. Um, your overall view of this, sum it up. Jeremy, um, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy um, joining the military, whatever branch, it's an organic thing and you can't cook it, you can't change selection. I'll give you one example. In the late 80s, a commanding officer was under pressure to bring more men into the SAS and they tweaked selection and made it easier. And what that meant was there was a number of guys joined the SAS who weren't capable of, of that position. And sadly, some of them were killed. As I've said, there's a process of joining our military and it shouldn't be tweaked no matter who you are or where you've come from. Completely agree. Chris Ryan, a former SAS sergeant in Plymouth, and Dr Afsal Ashraf, thank you very much for joining us. And next on Uncensored, my friends, a new documentary uh, tonight untangles conspiracies around Princess Diana's death 
There are still questions apparently to be answered after 25 years. We'll speak to the former spokesperson for the Al Fayed family, Michael Cole, along with Fayed biographer Tom Bauer. That's next on Uncensored. Don't go nowhere. We're coming right back. Welcome back to Uncensored. Now, Princess Diana's tragic final hours remain the subject of much speculation and scandal even 25 years on from her death. Channel 4 is the latest to enter the fray with a four-part documentary investigating Diana's death in Paris, which examines two police investigations into her passing. I think this... Have a look at this, actually. Just start like this. There's so many coincidences, so many odd things that just don't add up. 85% of the ordinary people of this country believe Diana was murdered with my son. Why would someone want to kill the Princess of Wales? It's very difficult to defeat a conspiracy theory. So do these aimless inquiries shed important new light on one of the royal family's darkest hours, or is it finally time to let the people's princess rest in peace? I'll be joined shortly by Fired Bug for Tom Baub. With me now is royal commentator and former spokesman for Mohammed El Fayed, Michael Cole. Michael, thank you for joining us tonight. What do you make of this new documentary? Good evening. I didn't watch it. I chose not to watch it. Uh, I didn't contribute to it. I declined the invitation. Um, I took those decisions because I didn't think it would elicit anything of any substance that was new. This morning, uh, a very famous... TV household name who was on television even before I joined television in 1967. He said to me, nothing new, Michael. And I did read the comments by Christopher Stevens, the very distinguished television uh, reviewer in the Daily Mail today, and he described the programme as trashy, cynical documentary with sound bites struck, strung together. So maybe I made a good decision, but the reason I found it and find this all very, very, very sad is that it's, it's distressing. I knew all three people who were killed that night. I, I knew Diana for 12 years. I went around the world with her. She occasionally phoned me. She occasionally asked advice. Uh, we weren't close friends, she didn't ask me out to lunch, but we had a good professional relationship. Dodie was always in and out of my office when he was in London, and I knew Henri Paul. Henri Paul drove me around in Paris, I always got on with him very well. So those were people I liked and admired, and like Mohammed, who is still in mourning after 25 years, I miss them. And I think it is a shame, if I can put it as lightly as possible, when this old ground is raked over for very little purpose on four consecutive nights on a terrestrial channel. What is achieved? You know, Jeremy, I would sit here and talk to you from now until the anniversary next Wednesday if it achieved anything, if it brought them back. And, of course, it won't do that. So what are we doing here? Um, I'm all in favour of honest journalistic endeavour. Yeah. And I do believe that information will, will come out in time. I but think, is this the right way of doing it? I think if I can jump in, I, I agree. I think, I think many people would quite rightly say it's distasteful. 
Others would say that maybe there are still questions. I'd like to cross now, if I can, to fired biographer Tom Bauer, um, who joins us now. Tom, what's your take on this, this new programme? What's your view, sir? Well, my view is simply this, that the whole controversy was actually created by Mohamed Fayed and, I must say, my old friend uh, Michael Cole, because the whole suggestion after the death that Princess Diana had been murdered by Prince Philip and MI6 in some gigantic conspiracy in Paris was utterly outrageous by a shameless man called Mohamed Fayed and his acolytes and spokesmen. I was amongst the very, very first, if not the very first person to arrive at the Ritz, courtesy of Mohamed Fayed, shortly after Diana died. And I spoke to all the hotel staff at the Ritz who had served her and Dodie in the hours before they then bid them farewell from, uh, from the Ritz and to their fateful deaths. And I can tell you that that dash by the car, Henri Paul, the drunken driver, speeding through Paris, was approved by Mohamed Fayed. The staff at the Ritz told me that they heard the conversations between Dodi and his father approving that ridiculous uh, escapade. And the idea that anyone could have plotted to murder Diana, which is what Mohamed Fayed perpetrated for 10 years afterwards, and why we have these programmes now, is absolutely outrageous. There was absolutely no way that anyone could have plotted uh, an assassination attempt if they even had the motive, which they didn't. And so it is a tawdry affair. What's awful about the uh, four-part series now is that it regurgitates all of Mohamed Fayed's rubbish. And not only rubbish, but damaging rubbish. It, it defames so many good people, not least of all Diana, because he came up with this ridiculous idea. He had her last words, which was a total fantasy. So what's really shocking about this uh, series, and you know, in the end it's just television, so who really cares, is that it took 10 years for a proper inquest, 10 years before Diana's death was subject to a judicial inquiry, which was an outrageous amount of time. And when Fayed actually turned up in court with his lawyer, Michael Mansfield, they didn't have a scintilla of evidence to present, which justified their long campaign that Diana had been the victim with Dodie of an assassination attempt. Tom, and with that, um, it was all over. Tom, thank and this you. this just, just uh, regurgitates all that. I just want to bring Michael back in. Not much time, Michael. Your response to what Tom has said. Briefly, sir, please. Well, uh, it wasn't Mohammed's fault that there was a 10-year delay and there were four uh, coroners appointed until they got to the one who they thought would bring no, 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 in... Michael, uh, Michael, did Mohammed Al-Fayed, in Tom's words, peddle untruths and falsehoods about it and is the very reason that 25 years later these programmes Absolutely. are still being made? Uh, he, he's, in, he's, entitled, he's entitled to his opinion. He believes that his son was killed and he was killed because the establishment did not want the mother of the future king, to be marrying a Muslim. And that's what he believes, and he's entitled to his belief. And on the anniversary, he'll go down to Dodi's tomb and he will sit there for a couple of hours listening to recorded prayers from the Quran. and then he'll go back and he'll have afternoon tea with his children. He is still in mourning. He's a man bereft. He lost not just his son, but a very good friend. And the allegations that Tom is blithely throwing around, I could answer every single one of them, but we don't have time. We don't. Tom Bauer, final word from you, please. Briefly, and I mean very briefly, sir. 20 well, seconds. <laughs> well, all I can say is he's had 25 years to prove his conspiracy, and I think it was shameless and cowardly of him to accuse Prince Philip of orchestrating the murder 
of Diana and the rest of the people in that car. It was shocking. He was a drunken driver, driving recklessly, drunk, and uh, sadly, Princess Diana wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Tom Bauer, belt. Michael Cole, thank you very much indeed. Accident. I think you two prove. I think the country and the world is probably still split. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, that's it from me. Do not forget, tomorrow night, live on the show, Tyson Furo joins me live. Tyson Furo uh, talking about his cousin who was stabbed and a lot more. Don't miss it. And just as Pierce says, wherever you are, make sure you keep it uncensored. Have a great night. Ta-ra! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.